You create your life with the stories you tell yourself. Want more fun, love, and money? Then write your new story and live into it. Louis DiBianco's podcast, Change Your Story, Change Your Life, shows you how to discover your empowering story. You'll meet many successful people who have created magnificent lives, even when the odds were stacked against them. Plus, you'll learn the secrets of great storytelling that can explode your business. And now, here is your host, Louis DiBianco. And once the storm is over, you won't remember how you made it through, how you managed to survive. You won't even be sure whether the storm is really over. But one thing is certain, when you come out of the storm, you won't be the same person who walked in. That's what this storm is all about. Those powerful words are from Haruki Murakami, an internationally recognized Japanese writer. Hello, storytellers, and welcome to another episode of Change Your Story, Change Your Life. I'm your host, Louis DiBianco. I have found that one of the most powerful and enjoyable ways to grow, expand, and enrich our lives is to read great books. And our sponsor, Audible, has made that easy and fun for you by offering you an audiobook of your choice absolutely free that you can download at their website, www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power. You get to choose the book that you want from more than 180,000 titles, and you get access for a month to all of Audible services absolutely free. When you get something of value from this podcast, go to iTunes, look for the title, Change Your Story, Change Your Life, leave a brief review and a rating for the show, a great way to pay this forward and to create more visibility and share this with more people. Keep your comments coming about what you're enjoying and also what you'd like to see in the show going forward. Send your comments to loseclub at gmail.com. That's L-O-U-S-C-L-U-B at gmail.com. Today's guest is a man who doesn't run from storms. He embraces them and turns them into opportunities for growth. He is an expert on authentic leadership. His highly popular book, The Crucible's Gift, Five Lessons from Authentic Leaders Who Thrive in Adversity, is empowering people to face what scares them, embrace it, and use it as a stepping stone to leadership. He also delivers this important message in his podcast, Executives After Hours. Get ready for expansion, growth, and inspiration from Dr. James Kelly. James, welcome to Change Your Story, Change Your Life. Thank you for that. And I love that quote to start out with. That was awesome. You know, it's interesting. I just went into Google and I said, great quotes on adversity. And that was maybe one of the, I, I found it immediately. That That is fantastic. I love that. I know. I know. <laughs> So let's begin with what were the major adversities that helped you become who you are today? 
Yeah, I love that question. So I was doing the, the, the pre. First of all, thanks for having me on your show. Sorry, I got I got taken up by the quote. Uh, so thanks for having me on your show, Lewis. Um, yeah, I think adversity for me is, is ever present. And I think that if anyone and you, you probably will agree with this, if you reflect on your journey, we all have our moments. The bigger question is not if we have them, but if we're able to reflect on them and find the good in them to expand who we are as human beings. So for me, I have a number of them, but the, but the predominant ones would be my father dying when I was 20. Oh, that was a pretty significant one. Getting a DUI when I was 24. And, and those are just negative ones that I think actually end up being fairly positive, which I know sounds a bit ridiculous. But then you have the other side of it, getting married at 31, having my first child at 33, and so forth and so on. So I've had a, a whole bunch uh, of adversity throughout my whole entire life. So please ask me anything specific about them. Uh, and I'm happy to dive in as deep as you want to go. Well, I'm curious about you said DUI at 24. Talk about that a bit. Yeah, so I think the DUI, you know, I, w- I, had, I had just taken my first job at a national advertising agency company, and I was grossly underqualified, and I did a fake it till you make it interview, and I got lucky, and the, the guy hired me, and I opened their 41st office here in Portland, Oregon, and I didn't know what I was doing. And at the same time, I hadn't really mentally transitioned from university, and I was still dealing with my dad's death. And so in that, I still would go out and I would drink and I'd do my thing uh, with my friends. And I made some pretty poor choices. And so one night, I was coming home. And this is such a vivid, vivid memory for me. I was coming home and I was living with my mom at the time because I was just transitioning back to Portland. and I didn't have a place to live and it was my first job and so forth and so on. And I'm coming down the straightaway. And it was a 35 and, and I was almost my mom's house. And there was this S turn. And I remember thinking in my head, I wonder how fast I can go and not kill anybody, and more importantly, not kill myself at the same time. Uh, and as I hit the S-turn, I was going about 75. And, you know, needless to say, that's pretty quick. And as I, as I come through it, I see this black and white blur to my left out of the corner of my eye, and it lights up like a Christmas tree. And I think to myself, okay, I've got two choices. I've got choice A, pull over, take my lickens, or choice B... And I was only a quarter mile from my mom's house, race home a quarter mile, get out of my car, get into the house, and really get away with the crime of the century in my mind. But there was the third option of get to my mom's house, have the cop car pull up behind me, and get thrown in handcuffs in my mom's neighborhood while her brand new boyfriend's out on the lawn watching in his Hanes t-shirt and his tidy whities And uh, that was the DUI. And here was the, here was the miracle of the story, I think, honestly, is... The court made me, it was mandated that I had to go to outpatient program rehabilitation. And in that, I had to go the first six months. And I can never remember if it was three or four days a week, but it was, uh, I'll say three and a half days a week at three hours a night for six months. And then I had to go another six months once a week for three hours and then a year of therapy after that. And I remember going into this thinking I had, I really had two distinct choices. I could let, I could let this adversity define me, meaning be sulky, sad, uh, bitter that I had to go through it, or I could define the adversity. And I thought that I would define it for myself by being open to the possibilities of what happens in these groups and what can I learn about myself. And, you know, after the two-year process, it was such a wonderful gift to go through that, that um, I'm thankful for it every day. And I write about it in the book as, as one of those springboards 
to become a better human being, to be more compassionate to those around me. I love that story. And uh, what's exciting about it is that um, it's totally in line with the best teachings of personal development. You know, um, I learned from a mentor, he said, when negative things happen to you, you can ask the question, why did this happen to me? Which is the wrong question to ask because mm. you're definitely going to get negative answers and you're going to have a pity mm. party. Or you can ask, how can I make this great? Mm-hmm. And when mm-hmm. I've applied that in situations that would seem terrible and I stayed with that question, I came, I, I discovered many, many positive uh, answers, uh, just like you did. Basically, mm-hmm. you were asking, how can I make this great? You, you remained open to um, learning from it. Yeah, and I think, I think that's really, that's a frame of mind, right? So there's this technique I call, use called flipping. And the idea is that when we come up with a negative proposition about something, what's the opposite of that? So let's take the DUI as an example. I could have easily said, well, um, this is a complete waste of my time and what am I doing? You know, why do I have to do this, so forth and so on. But the exact opposite of that is, is what is the best part about having to do this? What is the lessons I can learn from this? So to your point, I mean, it's a very simple tactic. Often as human beings, as leaders, as, as just organics, right, like just, just surviving, we often start from the proposition of the negative for most people. What is wrong? The pity party, as you said, that's usually where we start from. But if you can over, and you're allowed to have your pity if you want it, but the important thing is not to wallow in it. And the more important thing is how can you ask the opposite of that, right? So what is wrong with it versus what is right with this? Mm. What is the best of this? And that's a hard fundamental shift for a lot of people to make. You know, when, when you think about leadership, you know, we're really conditioned in the U.S. and in a lot of countries to think about uh, leadership in terms of problem solving from a deficit perspective. Where's the holes in this? Where's the process breaking? And when you start that proposition with anyone you're working with, you're really starting down a negative slope. And, you know, if you go to someone and you say, hey, this is what's wrong with this process, whether they want to or not, most people take it somewhat personal. Well, I came up with this process and blah, 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 blah. But if you start with this, the preposition or proposition of here's what's best about what's happening. How can we replicate that throughout the process? Mm hmm. Just that simple switch of, here's what's broken, let's fix it. Here's what's best, let's replicate it. That just starts the conversation in a much healthier perspective. Totally. And I'm glad you mentioned that that's, it's basically built into our culture. I mean, this is the reason why news yeah. is, well, because people gravitate toward the negative. And, you know, there's a, Apparently, a scientific reason for this. You, you've heard of the, the whole concept of the um, amygdala, the, the uh, lizard brain. Yeah. And it was, we still have it, but it's primitive. And we have it because it was necessary when our ancestors were stepping out of the cave in the morning instead of the house. And if they looked to the left and they saw a dinosaur, they should immediately be afraid and know to run. (laughs) But now, anytime we face change or something different, 
that amygdala speaks and we get that reaction of there's got to be what's wrong with this? What's wrong with this? We're always looking for what's wrong with it. And you've got to train yourself to start looking for what's right. Are you familiar with um, Ryan Holiday's book, The Obstacle is the Way? No, not. It sounds interesting. Oh, man, you'll love it. I mean, it's it's your philosophy. Yeah. The Obstacle is the Way by Ryan Holiday. And he even has a podcast. Of course. Uh-huh. <laughs> so you've kind of answered the second question, which was, no, actually, did you always see adversity as a path to growth? Maybe there was a time when you didn't. So, yeah, you know, I often reflect on that. I kind of grew up in a chaotic environment, chaotic environment, uh, who was also, who was, which was also phonetically challenged, which is ironic because I have a PhD. Um, I, I don't know if I did or didn't or if I was oblivious to it. What I can recall, because we're, we're all creatures of our social construction that we've been created in and raised in, right? Like that's the fundamental building blocks of us, at least in our early develop, developmental years is we only know our truth based on the environment that we're raised in. And so for me, I often find that because I kind of got used to a little bit of chaos, I had to learn how to survive in the chaos. And innately, and somehow, and I honestly don't know, Lewis, to be honest with you, I think that I just always kind of figured out that to get the best out of something, I had to react a certain way. Um, and I also grew up in a, in a environment that was, I was taught to accept whatever you got, right? Like, so if this happened and this is what it is, so it's what you do with it is what matters most. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the big things that we as human beings sometimes forget is things that maybe in, might be perceived as being done to us, but it's your choice in terms of how you react to it. Oh, yeah. You have control over that process. Mm-hmm. So you can't, you don't have control of what comes in the inputs you know, are just inputs from external forces. But the outputs in terms of how you react are really up to you in your reaction. Does something get underneath you, bother you, make you angry, or do that roll off your back? I mean, these are perspectives that people tend to share. I mean, a great example is I was just at um, a family member's house, and uh, the mom is awesome. She has a hard job. She's a mom of six, and five of them are boys, all under 11. Uh, God bless her. However, everything riled her up. Everything was the worst of everything. Everything was an explosion. And what you found in this environment is you started to see how the kids tiptoed around her, how the kids were really nervous around her. Uh, um, and the impact of that input to output was really negative. I'm sure, we, I'm sure, Lewis, you've been around people like that where, you know, the, 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 the instance, the, the, the moment something negative happens – they blow it up. I mean, you're you're an actor. I, I think sometimes actors can blow things up bigger than they need to blow it up. You know, I'm sure you've seen that. I don't know if you've seen that. Have you? Uh, my friend, when you say uh, you're sure I was around people like that, yeah, like how about being around myself? Because I was like that yeah. for many, many years until I embarked on a journey of personal development. Yeah. So what was what was for you like the – the tipping point, because I think that, you know, everyone always asks for that moment. I don't think there's one moment. I think there's a whole bunch that leads to the overall. Okay, you know. thanks for asking. Actually, it's it's very well-defined in my mind. 2006, I enrolled in a class called, I, it's a class, it was, it was, um, 
It was a camp called Enlightened Warrior Training Camp. It was a course, extremely intense, five days away from home, in the woods, cut off from uh, all technology. And the mandate of the course was to tame the cobra of fear. And for five days, they put fear in your face, physical, emotional, and spiritual. And I went into that course, a hypochondriac. I came out and never worried about health again. And that was in five days, 2006. And that was the beginning for me to understand that circumstances are neutral. The way I choose to respond is mm-hmm. my, is my, mm-hmm. my power and my control. So, I mean, not to, I was, not to interview you. Sorry, I'm just curious. Um, what led to that, though, right? Like, that was, that's five days. But, but there had to have been a history that said, okay, I need to go on a journey to kind of sort some stuff out. Well, it's quite funny. I mean, I'll, I'll relate it quickly because the interview is about you. But, Sorry, I know. No, no. It's, but, but, <laughs> I'm but this curious. Is, yeah. No, but this is all related to what we're talking yeah. about. The funny thing is, you see, I don't believe there are any accidents. But one day I went into a bookstore and on a shelf, on a, it was a sale shelf, so it was right, you know, put in my face, was a book called Secrets of the Millionaire Mind. And I thought the title was a little bit hypey, but I picked it up. And I started reading and I was hooked. It was by T. Harv Eker. Took it home. I got into it and it completely engaged me. And in that book, he said, because you have this book, you have a scholarship to my three-day intensive, the Millionaire Mind Intensive, which is a $1,200 course, and you get it absolutely free. So I went. And at that course, they exposed me to the philosophy of his personal development company. And at the end of those three days, they made the offer. Do you want to join the four-year program called Quantum Leap? Oh, uh, I know that. Yeah, okay. and I did. Yeah. And I joined, and the first course I took in Quantum Leap was the uh, Enlightened Warrior Training Camp. So the, the journey began with the Millionaire Mind Intensive, because that was already uh, forcing us to go inside and acknowledge the mind games that we play with ourselves, especially around issues of money, which are really emotional issues. Mm-hmm. And then um, to to take it further with courses like Warrior, Wizard. There was another one called Mind of Steel, Heart of Gold, which is the dance between the warrior and the wizard. But if we continue with this, this interview will end up on your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, because I mean, I think, but I think, Lewis, this is kind of the fundamental premise of the book. In a, in a macro level, is that you've just you've just basically proved my point. There's not one thing you've had a history that led to that particular moment to read that book that in you triggered the need to want to do something different, right? So you had 50 years or 30 years of history where you weren't particularly happy on the journey you were on. Well, you and, know, and, yeah, go ahead. So to take it well, a step further, my friend, I mean, like it came from the fact that uh, I came from a background where my mother. Her whole life was dominated by fear, and mm. I watched it destroy her. So, yeah. you know, that was it. Yeah. 
Well, and fear is like one of the main premises, right? So with any leader, and I teach this with my kids all the time, is that you know there's a mantra that I say that says, don't, don't let fear conquer you, conquer fear. And, what, and the premise of that is really simple. It's in life, you're going to be forced, forced to face a ton of emotional moments where the retreat seems like the better option because of your fear. And that's the exact time to lean into it. The fear of having a hard conversation with a colleague, the fear of having a hard conversation with a partner, the fear of um, saving money or not taking a trip or taking a trip that seems risky. Like fear is a fundamental factor in many of the choices that we make. In my mind, people might disagree. Some might say shame, a judgment, whatever it is. They all kind of to me come to the same place. And that's what I talk about. Don't let don't let the fear conquer you. Like lean into it. And that's what you did is that you had this fear running your life and you I'm guessing without a, you know a five minute conversation here is that you decided that you've had enough of that dictating your choices and that that was actually paralyzing you from getting bigger, better, or whatever you want to define for yourself as a human being. Mm. And out of that, out of that, this is the most important part is because you went through this transformational adversity moment. I bet you're more compassionate towards people who've been through similar things. I bet you have more integrity about having the harder conversations. I bet you value relationships differently now mm. that you've been through this adversity. Yeah. So. So this yeah. is, yeah, really fundamental to me. So thanks for sharing that. And it's improved my acting. I mean, it improves everything. I mean, you just, you just, the world changes when your mind changes. I mean, that's, mm. uh, you know, it, it's just a fascinating thing. So let me ask you, what was your darkest moment? Do you remember that? You know, as I read that question, because... You do a number of these interviews, and the one thing that comes up to comes up out of all these interviews is really my dad's death. I mean, I, I can remember exactly where I was, what was said to me, the first four words, and then everything else kind of went blank. Um, I remember the funeral. I remember my brother and I counted the cars in another funeral procession to see whose was larger because we were being competitive for no apparent reason. Um, I remember right after my dad's death. But I don't, I don't, you know, when we say darkest, I always go to the, the world of just really depressed. Um, and I don't think I've ever been depressed because I, I have, and I'm fortunate enough for this, not everyone has this and, you know, um, something you can develop. I am fairly resilient. So I can take a punch in the face and be a bit upset about something for a little bit, but I move on. Because I'm I'm a big fan of accepting what is is it what is is and you just got to kind of deal with it and figure out how to how to thrive in it, um, and, and this has been like this my whole life. So the DUI could have been a dark moment. My dad's death could have been just a. a it definitely was dark. I don't want to minimize it. Like I was de I was definitely depressed. I drank a lot more, um, which probably led to the DUI. Um, I made poor life choices to impress people to get approvals. Even now I seek father figures, and I'm 43. So, um, but, but here's my, here's my premise of life, Lewis. Uh, and, and this is my metaphor about how I treat my family. And this is my metaphor of just life. Somebody always has it worse than you. Well, yeah. So, mm -hmm. so if you think your life is bad, look around. I mean, how many people, how many stories are done with people who have lost both legs in an accident and they, and they, they stake their claim that that was the best thing that's ever happened to them. Right. Well, um, yeah, I have heard stories like that, and I'm now I'm thinking of, I can't pronounce his last name. His name is Nick. Uh, he's a young man. 
it starts with a V, his last name. But if you go onto YouTube and you just put in no arms, no legs, he was born. Yeah. yeah. Well, he's a motivational speaker. And, and, and here's what. You wouldn't want to play golf with him. And I'm serious because the guy, I've seen him, he holds a golf club between his ear and his shoulder and he will beat you at the game. <laughs> okay. You see, those, those are the stories. And so, like, that's what I think about when you think you're having a bad day. Have a view, like look around the world. Um, my wife is a triathlon coach, and one of her athletes has terminal cancer. He's going to die eventually, and I can't remember the name of the cancer, but it's riddled in his bones. It's put holes in his bones, and he just finished an Ironman, his mm-hmm. first one. Mm-hmm. You know, he knows he's going to die. Like, there's no if ands or buts. There's no cures for this cancer. It's the, one of the most under researched cancers. So I look at my bad days, and I think, here's a guy, who has three kids, beautiful kids. He's in his late 30s. He's going to die at some point. So who am I to complain? Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, it's it's very, very powerful. Now, you're from the United States, right? You were born in what yes. city? Uh, born and raised in Portland, Oregon. Okay, but you have spent a good deal of your time in the Middle East. So I'd love to that know why. Partially. Huh? partially. So just okay. to clarify... So um, since I graduated college, so I'm 43, so since about 24, I've spent almost half of that time living abroad. So I spent um, almost four years in Australia. I spent a year in Japan, and I now will be in the Middle East by the time I move back, probably four years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and in the Middle East, you're in Dubai? Yes, I'm just outside Dubai in this small town, a small, like 600,000, called Alain, A-L space A-I-N. And um, it is right on the Oman border. I'm a professor there. And it's, it's you know, Dubai is like any big city. You go to L.A., go to New York, go to San Fran. It's, it's, it's a big city in the Middle East. It's multicultural. Um, it's super Western. There's, there's drinking. There's nightclubs. There's, you, you're in any big city in the world in Dubai. In Elaine, not so much. In Elaine, it's very much a traditional city. Um, you don't have to cover up. You don't have to wear traditional garb. Uh, Mary doesn't show her sh- – my wife doesn't show her shoulders or knees, but she goes out for runs all the time. She's a triathlete, so she's out training. Um, but it's a, it's a great, great way to gain perspective on the world by being someplace so exactly opposite of what you think the world should be like. That makes sense. Like in the U.S., we, many people in the U.S. have a, have a blank – belief of how the world works or what it should look like. Um, but you really test that proposition when you go live abroad. I'm smiling because um, the current administration uh, certainly <laughs> <laughs> is, um, let's say, strengthening that point of view that uh, it, there's only one way to look at the world. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's that's, unfortunate. Yeah, I know. It is. But so what do you teach there? So, I mean, the irony is that uh, I'm a marketing professor, and um, when I went to get my PhD, I started off in leadership and management, and my advisor at the time left the school and just said, I don't want any, I don't want any students. I don't want to advise. And so I was kind of left holding the bag, and there were these two really well-known marketing professors. Uh, I, w- I went to the University of Western Australia in Perth to get my PhD, and there were two really well-known marketing professors there, and so I thought, well, I like marketing. I got good grades in marketing, so I'll just do marketing. 
So that's where I love the irony of this is that I've kind of gone full circle because I'm much more passionate about leadership and development than I am probably about marketing, if I'm being honest. And who do you teach? Who are your students? Yeah, so this is this is really interesting for an audience who probably doesn't know much about the Middle East, is I teach at the largest federal institution called United Arab Emirates University. And uh, the campus is split in two, where men are on one side, women are on the other, and there's what I call the DMZ zone. We have to go in a gate that's secure, walk through like a neutral zone, and then another gate on the other side to get into the ladies' side. Uh, so we call it the DMZ zone. And um, here's the irony. It's a school of 8,000. 6,000 of them are women. 2,000 of them are men. Mm. Uh, and so my average men's class size is about 6 to 7. My average woman class size is about 30 to 35. And, and are so, they, is it an international student uh, no, body? No, it is, it is 95% Emirati local students. Mm, and it's really fascinating. The women are really driven. Um, many of them see education as, as a, uh, I wouldn't say a way out. I don't think that makes, that's the right way to say it, but they see education as a, as a way to learn more and to have probably more control over their life. There's still a lot of social constructs there. And I think that often in the Middle East, we, we conflate the idea of Islam versus the culture. So there an Emirati culture is different than Islam. Now they overlay each other, just like saying you're an Irish and you're Catholic, they both overlay, but their tenets of being in an Irish culture, which are separate from being in a Catholic culture, but we, we combine them often together. And so, you know, the idea of covering up, for example, wearing what's called the abaya and the shayla, which is the headscarf, that's more of a cultural thing than a religion thing. But we often think it's more of a religion thing mm, than a culture thing. Mm, yeah, that's so, interesting. So, so when you talk to them about it, they're like, no, we don't have to wear this. It's not mandated by our religion. It's a choice we, we have based on the culture. Hmm. So, so it's a really fat. So often, and you ask the women, I'm like, "Oh, do you have to?" Like, "No, no, no, we choose to." They're like, oh, so that was one of the first. Like, uh huh. So it's not what you think, or um, you know. But the idea of drinking is more of a, a religion thing. So you know, certain. So they get they get conflated together quite often, and that's the nuance that I think we miss in the U.S. quite often when we're appraising cultures or religions, is that a culture is basically a social construct of what the norm should be in that society. And religion is a set of beliefs that you have. And so we, we tend to conflate both of those all the time, especially in the Middle East, because to be fair, we're fairly ignorant, you know, on what goes, because it's not a hot vacation spot for many people. So you don't know much about it. So yeah, so that was one of the more fascinating things about living there. Wow. Now, what have you learned about personal growth from living in the Middle East? So one of my one of my biggest things about growth is that if you're not evolving, you're dying. Uh, and so I'm an experiential learner. Uh, I like to experience things because I feel like that's where you test your own personal boundaries. And so from a personal growth perspective, um, you learn a deeper sense of tolerance. You learn a deeper sense of respect of what's different. And here's the biggest thing I think that we – I think leaders struggle with this. And, and – Lewis, let's define leadership. I think often we think leadership is like the person in charge in a company. To me, a leader is anyone who – like anyone can be a leader, right? And I think there are leaders that people gravitate towards because they have that it factor, whatever it is for them as a human being. Um, and that doesn't mean that person is actually in charge of anything at the end of the day. And so um, one of the things that I learn about being there and, and living in other countries altogether 
is that when you start looking at the horizon of the world that we live in, we have way more things in common than different. But again, going back to the deficit approach, we want to focus on what's different because that's what's most uncomfortable. And so from a growth perspective, and, and, and this is for my kids and, and for my wife and for myself as well, is to constantly look at where the similarities are. Because once you find that, common conversations can happen with anybody, right? Kids, they love their kids the same as we love our kids, right? Um, uh, socializing, they're actually more social than we are as a society. We can learn from that, uh, you know? So there, there are aspects of cultures, you know, in Australia, they don't treat sport athletics as a way to get to college. They treat it as a way to have an active life. Well, there's a difference there in mentality, so we get our kids to be burnt out by the age of 18, and there they get their kids to love being active for the rest of their life. Mm. There's a fundamental difference. And so, so from a personal growth standpoint, I love living abroad or in different cities because what you start finding out is there's a common set of beliefs that we all have that, that's universal regardless of race, color, creed, and religion. I and that helps it. you lead, by the way, right? Huh? That helps you lead better. Yeah, yeah, no, I love it. Yeah, absolutely, because yeah. it helps, yeah. Once you understand people and are more compassionate, then you're in a better position to support them and bring out the best in them. Yeah, yeah there's, there's a, there's, I'm, and I know, Lewis, you're going to agree with this. There's this phrase that I've been using a lot over the last couple of years. When I start to disagree with someone or I start to get frustrated, uh, I remind myself that this is their truth. Like, this is their truth. Yeah. I can't argue with their truth. I can ask questions about their truth. I can ask clarification about their truth. But I can't get angry about their truth. And when you start to realize from that perspective, and in the book I call it, like, basically putting on a pair of glasses or putting on another pair of lenses, once you start looking at it from their lens, again, the compassion comes into play. And you start to realize, like, okay, we can get to a point of agreement about something because now I understand where they're coming from. And, and that's a really fundamental thing when you're leading anybody. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, of course, I agree. I mean, my podcast is based on that philosophy. It's that everything in life is a story. Beliefs are stories. And if you have embraced the belief, then that story is your truth. Yes. You know? Yes, and, absolutely. And, and uh, yeah, that, that's great. That's really great. So you, your model is called the authentic leader model. What, what is that? So the authentic leadership model, you know, this is a great exercise. You have a pen ready, so I'll walk you through it. It's really simple. Um, the way this came to, to be is that, you know, the book is predicated on roughly 140 plus interviews with executive CEOs from around the world, from entrepreneurs to Fortune 100 company executives. And I started to find this pattern of what I deem to be an authentic leader. So what I want you to do is, um, and audience, you guys can walk through this as well, is you're going to draw a series of circles, but it's going to look like a bullseye at the end of the day. So you're going to start with a smaller circle, and you're going to write words in these, so don't make it too small. You're going to start in the center, and we're going to work our way from the inside out. And in the center circle, you're going to write the word uh, crucible or adversity. Say that so, again? You're going to do what? So in the inside circle, the very center, yeah. you're going to write the word either crucible or or adversity, either one. Okay. And this is one of the things I found with leaders that really thrived is that they had some sort of major adversity. This is things like death in the family, addiction, 
um, being a foster child, being adopted when they were nine, um, like all sorts of things. And then the next layer, so if you do another circle around that, so again, we're creating the bullseye now, you're going to split that into two. And what I want you to do is on one half of that, write the word self-awareness. And we're going to leave the bottom half blank for the moment. And what I found is that people who had crucibles, who had the ability to become self-aware about those crucible moments, actually started to develop a growth mindset, which I gave away the, the candy there by accident, because that's the bottom half of that, of that, other, of that other space in the, in the uh, self-awareness, and it's called, actually called the growth mindset or learning mindset. Um, and, and so what was really interesting is that every time that there was some sort of adversity moment, it wasn't an instant self-awareness moment. That is complete false. Uh, it's a falsity. And the, and the reality is, is that when we have adversity, we often don't know that that moment is transformational. Because it's going to be a secondary moment 12 months, 18 months, five years from then that actually makes you reflect on that moment of adversity. And that's the connection that you make. Or so, you may, or you may not, you may never. I mean, there are people who will yeah, always absolutely. just hold on to it and say, "Well, you know, this terrible thing happened to me, and that's why my life sucks." Yeah, exactly. The to me, to me, to me. Yeah, that's the yeah. important thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, and so, the last little bit here is that the the final circle around all this bullseye is broken into three parts, and it's going to be compassion in one part, integrity in another part, and then relatableness. In the third part. And so what I found in this framework is that when leaders had the ability to embrace their crucible moment, self-reflect, self-aware, they're able to develop compassion for those around them. And specifically around people who went through similar instances as them, similar adversity moments. But it also forced many of them to become and live with more behavioral integrity. I don't talk much about moral integrity in the book, only from the standpoint of that we all have different flavors of what we seem as moral integrity, and I don't want to be the judge of that. But behavioral, showing up on time, putting your phone down when you're having a conversation, um, having the hard conversation. You know, as a leader, sometimes you have to tell someone that the job's not suited for them. That's not an easy conversation. Um, and then also, they valued relationships more. And this is what's really important, is that there's a lot, and all of this stuff is backed by some sort of, of literature academically uh, literature i don't get heavy into it because i find academic books a bit boring to be honest with you so it's more of a conversation but i want to show support for each concept that i put in here but here's the thing that was most important and you alluded to it and i gave away the candy early on is that if they don't have a growth mindset none of it even matters it's just a to me moment right it happened to me um and and so they don't actually ever evolve as a human being Mm, no, I love it. You know, I love earlier when you said that if you're not evolving, you're dying. Are you familiar with the Bob Dylan song? Um, it's all right, ma. I'm only no. I'm only bleeding. Well, no, uh, one of the I, wish I was a bigger Bob Dylan fan, but I'm not. Well, one of the key lines in it is he not be he not busy being born is busy dying. Yeah, I love that. Isn't that great? Yeah, that's great. I don't know. I mean, it's, yeah, it really is. I mean, it just, uh, I, I heard that when I was in my early 20s and I've never forgotten <laughs> it. I go back and visit it every now and then. That's a good uh, point. Hey, uh, can I, huh? just one more point about, one more point about the framework, which I think is really important. Yeah, sure. You know, is 
is it's not a zero-sum game. It's not all or nothing, right? So when you look at that framework, some people are more compassionate than others. Some value relationships more than others. These are aspirational. Can I, can I be and live with more integrity? Can I act with more compassion? Can I value the relationships I have more and take better care of them? Um, and in, in terms of growth mindset, some things we're super growth heavy on and some things we're very fixed on. We don't want to change. We don't want to grow. You know, how you eat might be a fixed mindset, but how you work out might be a growth mindset. How you talk to your family might be a growth and, or might be fixed, but how you talk to a new partner might be growth. So the idea is to become self-aware and know where you're fixed and grow, where you need to be fixed uh, and where you need to grow, and where you are struggling with compassion in the workplace or, where, or in your life or where you're struggling with uh, having hard conversations in your life. I mean, these are all, you know, so I just want to say it's not, it's not like a zero sum, like you're either all or nothing. We're all more or less stronger in different aspects of this, of this model. I love it. You talk about, uh, false narratives that a lot of people have about happiness and success. Can you yeah. articulate that a bit? Yeah, I think that, um, that's another great question. Thanks, Lewis. I, uh, so, you know, I just read, I wrote an article recently about, and I've, I've talked about it a couple times already. I wrote an article about uh, millennials in the workplace and how a lot of leaders and managers kind of berate probably a bit of a strong word, but struggle to deal with millennials coming in and you know they're they're needy they need lots of affirmation a lot of attaboys a lot of check on their works but the reality is is and i'm getting to a point here is that that's the social construct they were raised in when you think about social media it's instant it's how many likes did i get it's who commented it's do you like my post you know how many people love my photo these are all instant gratification so of course they come into a work environment thinking that is the social norm that they should be engaging in. So that's the, the premise of this whole idea is that there's a social construct that we have created for our society when it comes to success and happiness. And this is a no-brainer. Everyone knows this, that you know, money doesn't actually equate to happiness. You know, my, my nephew lives with my mom, and he's 24, and he's always asking, well, how much does this career make, and how much does that career make? And you say, like, listen, none of that matters because – Money, a lot of money actually creates a lot of misery at the end of the day for some people. Not enough money creates a lot of misery. But the difference between people who are poor and rich who are happy is that they take money out of the equation and they just enjoy life for what it is. And so often in life, we set up expectations. It's false expectations. Like I don't know, you know, for many people when they get out of university, the thought process is get a job, get married, have kids. That was mine. And when that wasn't fulfilled and wasn't met, my expectations – I was super unhappy. And so the simple equation of happiness comes from a guy named Mo Gadot. He wrote a book called uh, Solve for Happy. He used to be a, a Google executive. He's now stepped down uh, and just travels the world. He wants to make a billion people happy. But, but to paraphrase his book, and this is such a true example of happiness, is that it's plus or minus your expectations you have in any situation that you go into. So if you come in with expectations that are high, you're most likely going to be disappointed. If you come in with no expectations, then you're just going to be happy because you're happy to be there. Um, and I think that's a really fundamental thing about success is that if you're enjoying the process and not the outcome, you're probably going to be a lot happier because you don't have expectations of what the outcome is going to be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How do you spell this man's last name, Gadot? 
It is a uh, oh boy, G A W D A T, Mo Gadat. And the the book is what for happy? Solve for happy. Sol S A U L. Solve S S O L V E. Oh, solve. Okay, yeah, I guess because I was watching uh, Better Call Saul that that was on my. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and his book, and his book's really, really well accepted. It's a big book. It's thick with lots of research in it, but it's written in a really entertaining way. Cool. That's really good. What are micro moments of meaning? Ah, so these. This comes from the relatableness chapter, and these are these moments that leave the other person with a smile. It's my belief, and and, and there's a lot of literature out there that says that. For every positive moment a person has in a day, it act, it basically goes into a bank of positivity. And they actually then give that away when they have interactions with other people. So in an organization, if you're trying to create a culture of happiness, you want to create a culture of micro moments of meaning. These are 15 to a minute long interactions that are positive in nature and, and being happy or smiling is, is really a necessity for it to be successful. Because you want the other person to leave that moment thinking, that was a really great conversation or that's a really great person or they're really uh, compassionate or they value me as a human being. And when you create those micro moments of meaning, you're allowing people to feel valued in the organization. Leaders that I interviewed who did these little actions, these little micro moments of meaning, they treated everybody in the organization the same, whether it was another person in the C-suite or the janitor or admin at the organization. They cared enough about them to know maybe their child's name, their activities in the weekend. Um, they didn't treat them as if they were beneath them. They treated them as if they were an equal. And it was only those only occurred in those micro moments of meaning by having quick, short, sharp conversations. That doesn't have to be like TMI, too much, too much information conversations, but just enough to leave the other person smiling. I mean, this is something that I do, and I think it, I think, and I believe it works really well for creating a culture of kindness compassion, um, trust, which is really important in organizations and in society in general, since we seem to be lacking a little bit of it, uh, in terms of people around you. Mm. And it's just nice. It's just nice. You know, one of the, one of the things that um, I get questions a lot about is this idea of authenticity and people saying, well, I'm just a jerk, so I'm being authentic. And I argue that, no, you're just being a jerk. Like, that's different, Right. Yeah, are you an authentic jerk? Maybe, but it doesn't mean you're being authentic in my term of authenticity. For me, authenticity is trying to be a better version of yourself for the greater good of society. Um, you know, in the U.S., we're very, very much individualistic, and we're very much about um, what can I get out of this? What's the transactional? But when you start looking at big organizations now, they're moving away from transactional leadership. They're moving into this idea of community leadership. And what is the greatest good for the greatest amount of people? And how can we lead with compassion? How can we get compassion and integrity embedded in organizations? Because the research is really clear that when you have compassion, when you have and value relationships, and when you really live with integrity in organization, the ROI is better, the trust is better, the loyalty is better, the productivity goes up. Because the average, the average engagement rate in the U.S. workforce is 33%. So that means 67% of the people actually aren't engaged in their job. And engagement means being part of the process. Participation is meaning I show up and I do my work and I go home. So when you have higher engagement, you actually earn more money in an organization 
for the shareholders, for the bottom line. So it's kind of a win-win when you think about it. I agree. And marketing and capitalism, um, the more evolved um, participants in marketing and capitalism are actually moving more and more away from that transactional approach as well. And ironically, they're making more money. Yeah, yeah. They're making a lot more money. I mean, if you follow people like Joe Polish, Dan Sullivan, um, these are big players. These are, uh, and they're all about focusing on helping other people. It's not about how much can I grab for myself mm-hmm. at all. How I, do you, I, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Okay, I, was, I, was actually, I was just at a camp, I was at Mount Rainier this weekend um, at a camping, and one of the guys there is um, senior leadership at Microsoft, and he said that there's been a fundamental shift from when Steve Ballmer was there to, uh, I can't remember his name, the new CEO, um, and I can't remember his name, of Microsoft. And it went from transactional, sales focus, like get the job done, highest percentage, burn, 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 which broke a lot of trust in the organization, to the new CEO, which is very much compassion-based. right? And that's one of the metrics that they now have, is how are you helping the team? How are you being part of solving a problem and, and working as a group. And he's noticed that over the last four or five years since the transition of CEOs, that the culture is now shifting, that, that the, the need to be competitive at all cost is now being replaced by the need to be cooperative at all cost. And that's a really powerful, so big organizations, LinkedIn is the same thing. Um, the CEO of LinkedIn just gave a speech at Wharton for a graduation and talked about how the moment he realized that compassion was the, the superpower, it transformed the way he led and the way that, that, that LinkedIn works. So there's something to be said about it in corporate world where they're starting to, CEOs starting to get it, that the bottom line's actually increased by having conscious capitalism, essentially, at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. I love it. It's, it's really great. Um, yeah, this is profound. Can you define crucible for people? I mean, we yeah. know we know it, and yet it, it, it's there's a value in actually defining it. Yeah, sure. So when you think about the idea of um, a crucible, the best way to describe it, and I define it in the book, is it's any fundamental moment that forces you to have just a shift in your philosophy and your belief. And again, it's not a moment that will, it's not a, it's not like an input output in the moment. It's an input. And it ferments, it stews, and then it comes out. And I want to be really clear about this idea of the crucible is that, you know, a lot of people might teach the fact that you just need to have a mindset. Like, nope, just be positive about it. And yeah, that's definitely part of it. But you also have to be miserable sometimes. Like, you have to be a little bit sad about what happened. And you have to let it beat you up. It can't consume you. It can't define you. But you have to accept it, whatever that it is for you in an adversity moment, a crucible moment. And only when that acceptance happens and you went through this, Lewis, are you able to then trans transform into whatever that better version of you is. So just to say it again, crucible moment really is any fundamental moment in your life that forces forces you to take pause and reevaluate and fundamentally shifts who you are. Would you call it a kind of trial by fire? 
You could. You could again. So I'm. I'm. This is where I'm really bad, Lewis. I hate defining things for people because we all have to come up to our own truths of what that means to them. And so, yeah, I've had a ton of trial by fires, and there's things that have happened around me that I had no control of, control over my dad's death. I had no control over that. But I feel like when you say trial by fire, it means that you're you're explicitly a part of the process, and that's not always the case. You know how you perform at your job, you're part of that process. How a parent dies, you're not. And so some of your adversity moments is definitely trial by fire, and some are just life. Well, you you know, you say, well, when a person dies, you're not part of the process, but you are put to the test. I mean, it can destroy you, or, mm-hmm. I mean, you're part of the process in the sense that you were connected to that, indiv- that, that human being. Sure, sure, but you so, have no control over that. Over the event, but but o- but over the interpretation, which is then Correct. the crucible moment that l- can lead to transformation. You familiar with Arthur Miller's play, The Crucible? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's a whole other story. We won't get, we won't get into it. It's very very powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Now you have made a very intriguing statement that uh, thinking about your eulogy. And make you a better leader. Talk about that. Yeah. You know, I think that um, in life, if you, you know, we, no one can read the tea leaves to the future, uh, much as we try to, and some people want to control. But when you do the eulogy experiment, it's kind of about creating this idea of how you want people to see you. And in doing that, that fundamentally shifts the way that you might see yourself or the way you might act. And so, one of the things that I like to have people do is to write out what their eulogy would be at their funeral. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was a really interesting experiment that I did in my interviews where I asked a lot of people, what, what do you want people to say about you at your interview, at your death, sorry, at your funeral? And the responses really varied. I mean, it was, it was really interesting. Some were like, good business person, uh, made money, uh, was super successful, some were, um, was a great dad, was a good husband, was a great friend. And the difference of those two are pretty stark. The ones that defined their life in terms of personal relationships, treating others with kindness, um, being a good human being, they're going to act that way moving forward. Those that, that wanted to be described as a good business person, made lots of money, they're seeing life, at least at this point, as a transaction. And so, you know, for me, I feel like if I could ask that as a job interview question, what would you want your eulogy to say? Like, that would give you an insight into that person. Now, some people are going to BS you, for sure. Um, There's no doubt about it, because they're going to tell you what you think you want to hear, and I'm sure I got some of that, some of these questions. But at the end of the day, I think doing a eulogy experiment is a great way to find out how people perceive themselves and how they want other people to perceive them. And, and because we, for most human beings, we want to act and behave in a way that is for the greatest good, meaning be a good husband, be a good mother, um, be a good grandparent, whatever that means for them. By acknowledging that out loud, it allows us to start creating that social construct moving forward of what that would look like for them and then for the people around them as well. Mm, I love that. That's really, it's a very interesting point of view. Mm. 
Yeah, it's great. I love doing it with people. I think, I think it just it gives a lot of insight. And it also forces individuals to reflect because maybe they weren't doing those things and they realize, man, I probably should be doing those things. Now, how do you develop self-compassion and why <laughs> why is it important? So, you know, any any mother will tell you this, that it's so hard to take care of yourself. But when you do, it makes it easier to take care of other people. We can take nurses as an example. In, innately, nurses have to have compassion, right? They've got to go in and deal with patients, uh, patients, family members, all sorts of things. But they almost always have to take care of themselves. And it's my belief, uh, and literature is pretty clear about this as well, is that if you can take care of yourself physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally, it allows you to be better equipped to take care and be more compassionate towards others. Because you can get go through what's called compassion fatigue, and over time you just run out of steam, and you deplete yourself, and you get sick, and you get overweight, um, and you start engaging in unhealthy relationships outside of your work environment. And so, you know, to be right with yourself means you can be right with other people at the end mm-hmm. of the day. Yeah, it's absolutely true. I mean... Uh... Uh, if you don't, you will have a strong sense of resentment, and uh, yeah. you're going to act that out in one way or another. Totally. And I you see. What, it. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, you know, one of the things I always, you know, one of the other things that happens a lot because of this idea of self compassion, like lack of compassion, for example, but self compassion, is the need to be right. Right. Like mm-hmm. the, the person mm-hmm. who gets the last word, or the person who, who, you know, has to tell someone i told you so or that's what i said or like those are all all of those statements right like marriage is a great example because it happens all the time where you and your wife might be debating about where to go for dinner and you say okay we'll go to where you go and then the dinner ends up being bad and then the husband goes see i told you like this was a better choice to go here that doesn't do any good right and so one of the things that i that i i preach is um uh do right, not be right. So do what is right, but but don't have to. You don't have to be right. Does that I, make sense? Yeah, no, I totally. And, and you're talking to a person who lived a long. I lived a long time with a just a, an unconscious need to be right. I mean, it was yeah. it was my my knee jerk reflex, uh, and it really was. It was powerful, and I've had to work on that. And what I began to realize is that the more confident a person becomes, the more centered mm-hmm. a person becomes, the less important it is mm-hmm. that I'm right. And I, when I practice that in relationships with people, uh, it's very powerful just mm-hmm. because you will avoid a lot of unnecessary friction and hostility. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's really powerful. Yeah, it's it is. a simple thing. Well, you know what? Yeah. Simple, but not easy. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Tell us a little more about your book. Yeah. So um, I mentioned earlier, the, the book is out on uh, pretty much every platform at this point. Um, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, Apple, all those places. And um, I'm really proud of the book. You know, it was endorsed by Dr. Marshall Goldsmith, which for any of your audience that follows leadership literature, he's one of the top for sure. He was ranked uh, Thinker's 50's number one leadership expert in the world. Um, the book was endorsed by Bill George, who wrote the book True North and who was the um, old Medtronic CEO. Now he's a Harvard professor on leadership. He endorsed it. 
Um, the Washer Speaker Bureau founder. Uh, oh my gosh, I just blanked out on his name <laughs> off the top of my head. Um, really great guy. So I, I, anyhow, so I got a really a, a, a eight really good endorsements from people who I think exemplify leadership and who are well respected about the book. And, and what's great about the book, one of the best descriptions was by a guy named Dennis Boyle, who's the co-founder of IDEO. Um, said that it's it's uh, insightful, um, fun, and irreverent. And I love that. I love the description of irreverent. It's a very simple read. And, and my thing is that if you, if you read the first chapter, which you can get for free on my website, if you read the first chapter, uh, you're either going to love it or hate it. And if you love it, you're going to love the whole book. And if you hate it, just put it down at that point anyways, because don't waste any more of your time. Um, but the book is is a labor of love. It was out in April. Um, and it's it's doing well. Of course, you always want to do better. And I'm starting to now try to speak on it and do uh, seminars on it based on this concept called appreciative inquiry. And so, you know, the idea of AI, essentially, appreciative inquiry is, is talking to people about how to be, their, be a more authentic version of themselves by figuring out what the best of what was, is, and could be at the end of the day. So, for example, you know, Lewis, for you, you're talking about this, this need to be right was kind of fundamentally with yourself. And when you made that shift to realize you don't need to be right, what was it that brought out the best in you to make that moment? And in that best in you, can you, do you have two or three stories? And we talk about these two or three stories. Okay, great. How can we take those examples and put them in today's world and moving forward? Right? And so it's kind of a stepwise process of the best of what was, is, and could be around being more authentic. Mm, love that. It's a great um, strategy. And but you didn't. I mean, I I mentioned the title at the beginning, but I want you to mention it again. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh, that you mean that part? Yeah. Um, it's called the Crucible's Gift: Five Lessons from Authentic Leaders Who Thrive in Adversity. And as I said, you can go to my website www.drjameskelly.com. That's d r james k e l l e y dot com, and just click on the tab. Uh, I think it's called Book or Crucible's Gift. Can't remember what it's actually called on the website, uh, and you get a free introductory chapter. Uh, for the book to see, you know, test drive it, if you will. Well, I believe that you also have um, a link for our listeners, and it's is yes, it, it's the same. Well, it's the same uh, website, but uh, forward slash change. Correct. Well, it's the Crucibles Gift uh, dot com uh, forward slash change. So it's the Crucibles Gift dot com forward slash change. That's where it's at. Okay. Thanks for reminding me of that, Lewis. I appreciate that. Yeah, that's uh, so storytellers. Uh, and there are other surprises waiting for you at that site as well. Yeah. So definitely check it out. Um, it's a valuable gift from uh, from James today. What is your favorite book besides your own? <laughs> I know. I feel like I've read mine so many times. I don't even know if that even qualifies as my favorite anymore. Um I just, what was I just reading? Um, I just read a book that was really impactful and I thought was great. What, what the heck was it? So I just read um, a book by Dr. Marshall Goldsmith called Triggers. That's great. But I'm trying to go historical. You know, historically, one of my favorite books ever is High Fidelity by um, Neil, Neil uh, Hornberg. Uh, Oh my gosh, I'm really bad with names, Lewis. I'm the worst person ever with names. But it, it, but it's high fidelity, um, and it's it's an absolutely awesome book. So for me, that's really important from a business perspective. 
I just constantly keep reading different ones and they all have insights. You know, there's a book I actually read uh, recently called uh, – you're killing me, Lewis. You're killing me on these questions. But here. you only needed one, see? I know, I know, I know. But now this is going to kill me that I can't remember the name of it. That's okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's, a re- it's, a really, it's actually a really impactful book because it's about how to ask the right questions. And I think this is more important. Like all the leadership books, for the most part, if I'm being honest, tell you the same, I don't know, five to seven things. Right. There's not. But it's how they tell you how to be a better leader at the end of the day. Um, And this particular book uh, talks about the idea of how to be um, how to ask the right questions. And so I'm trying to stab stab Rose. I'm trying to look it up for you really quick. It's a really, really important book. Uh, Jackie Strap. Rose. Trying to find the book for you. I'm killing you right now, aren't I? I'm just killing you. Tell me, uh, while you're looking it up, what is your favorite quote? So my favorite quote is is, is really, don't let fear uh, conquer you, conquer fear. That's my own quote. I don't have some big long quote um, because I think that that encompasses me as a human being. And I think it encompasses those who who really struggle as a human being to 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 live life to the fullest. So I think it's a really important quote. Good. I like it. And uh, go ahead. Where do you see yourself in five years? That is a fundamental question that I struggle with every single day. I I struggle with where do my talents best best lie? And I Mm -hmm. struggle with what am I trying to accomplish at the end of the day? Um, And I think that's part of me always wanting to change and evolve and grow. I think that's part of part of who I am. And and so in five years right now, the, you know, the plan is to come back in two years, if not shorter. And then in that time, um, figure out where we're going to live. We don't know yet. So we're down to a couple of different cities. And once we figure that out, um, either stay in higher ed or be consulting. I'm, I'm leaning way more towards the consulting side of things than to be in higher ed, if I'm being honest. Uh, but I think, I think that's kind of where my talents are. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that's the short answer of it is that's where I see myself in in five years. Beautiful. And I got the name of the book. So here we go. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. All right. It's called Conversations Worth Having. And it's Using Appreciative Inquiry to Fuel Productive and Meaningful Engagement. And it's by Dr. Jackie Stavros and her colleague, um, Sherry Torres. And it's a really phenomenal book because it's really easy with a lot of actionable things to do instantly like that remember i talked about that concept of flipping the question mm-hmm. from a negative to mm-hmm. a positive it's in the book and they talk about why it's so important and how to do it um and 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 the impact it has long term so i recommend any leader who's trying to be a better leader in a bad situation to read this book to become a better leader in any situation. I use this stuff with my kids at home all the time. Really yeah, impactful. sure. That's not, I mean, these are, it's not just, it's not about business per se. It's about life. It's about a, a point of view toward the world. Now, if you could wave a magic wand and change just one thing in the world, what would it be? Your tolerance. 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 I just think to- we lack tolerance of difference. Like as as a global issue, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, you know, and that and how we treat children. I think children get mistreated all the time, and they have no say in the equation. And um, it's tragic, and it has long-term consequences. And um, valuing them as human beings is is really important from an education perspective, especially especially in the U.S. in a time where I feel like we're spending less on education and more more money to the companies. And again, I'm a total capitalist, but I'm I'm more of a conscious capitalist where I think you can have a win-win, win for society and win for for companies. Mm-hmm. No, I I I I'm with you. Yeah. Any final thoughts for our storytellers today? You know, I here's my final thoughts and I hope I hope those that listen to this, you know, for me take a risk and and, and go get the book. I think that in life we are constantly evolving as human beings, and in that process, we need guideposts. We need moments to determine if we are moving that way. But in the same note, it's okay if you fall back. It's, you have to be willing to fall back forward again. So take the risk, fall forward, fear, fail fast, but get yourself up quickly and dust your knees off and get going again. Beautiful. I love it. I want to thank you, man. You've really contributed a lot. And uh, part of the joy is your uh, excitement, your energy. You know, you're uh, you're passionately alive, my friend. And that's a wonderful thing. Thank you, Lewis, for having me on your show. I really appreciate it. It's been fun, which is what everything should be. And thank you once again, storytellers, for spending time today with me and James Kelly. The word that jumps to mind for me is uplifting. Kelly's energy, his commitment, his authenticity are uplifting. So pay this forward. Uplift other people. Let them know that they can hear this on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn Radio, and at the website, changeyourstorypodcast.com. Rush to the website. Download the gift that I've created for you. It will shift your perspective about communication and storytelling, which will improve every single area of your life. It's an ebook called Storytelling Secrets for a Rich Life and Business. We talked about a lot of exciting books today. And yes, readers are leaders. Books expand you, they change you, they make you grow, and they elevate your life. Remember that our sponsor is Audible, where you can go and download an audiobook of your choice, absolutely free, choose from more than 180,000 titles, and get a whole month free trial of all of Audible service. Simply go to www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power. There were many insights that James Kelly gave to us today. A few things really jump out at me, worth pursuing, worth thinking about during the next week. He uses the word risk and how important it is. 
take a risk to explore areas of your life that may be a little scary, may be a little uncomfortable, but when you look at them and dive into them, they hold nuggets, secrets of incredible growth, success, and happiness. Take the chance to search out your crucible moment, that defining moment in your life that could totally turn things around for you if you haven't already experienced it. Then again, we can have more than one crucible moment. Is there one that you're hesitating to approach? Fail forward. How important that concept is. To help you grow in this exciting and maybe uncomfortable direction, begin by asking, how can I change my story and change my life? Tune in to the next episode of Louis DiBianco's podcast. Become unstoppable as you learn to change your story, change your life.